0: Can't do Not you now. you I don't you to
1: I'm Charles James Austin. I'm the author of the Millennial series. Um, the series, the series. in the series, i am going to recapture my experiences when I was in the Air Force in the middle of 1960s. Uh, <laughs> I was born in Wisconsin and uh, on July 24th, 1964, I entered the U.S. Air Force. Uh, I I was stationed at Lackland where I did basic training and then at Chenute Air Force Base, Illinois for weather training school. And in March of 1965, I was, stayed, I was sent to Nellis Air Force Base, which is just outside Los Angeles, Nevada. And I was there until the 7th of May, 1967, when I shipped out of Vietnam. I returned from Vietnam in May of 1968. Uh, I had less than three months remaining in my term of enlistment, so the Air Force policy was that so I was given honorable Charge and home. While I was at Nellis Air Force Base from 65 until 67, I I spent more than two of those years out on the Nellis Gunnery Mantis as the range weather observer. I discovered that out on those bases, there is, out on the ranges, there is a base that the Air Force maintains for aliens, and the Air Force maintains the outer perimeter. There is an air perimeter, which the air maintain, maintained, and then everything inside this perimeter is treated like a new campus. Looking up the valley to the north, The the base is in the mountains at the far end of that valley. It's probably 40 miles or so up there. There's two mountains up there. The base itself is is in the mountain on the east. The alien living area, the living quarters, are underground in the mountains on the west. Um, After I got out of the service in May of 68, I met my wife and married her in May of 69, my wife Marie, and we went to to school in California. I have a master's degree in nuclear physics, a bachelor's degree in thermal physics, and over the years I also uh, received a master's in business administration from Nova Southeastern University at Fort Lauderdale. Um, During the 80s, when computers finally were good enough so that there were word processors, then I began writing my memoirs for my children and grandchildren. And those memoirs became the Millennial Hospitality Series. I found that I wanted to convey to um, people, especially my children and my grandchildren, how it felt to be the weather observer and to have the aliens come down to where I was and to have to interact with them. Originally I was part of the uh, part of the rotation pattern. So originally I was sent up in May of 65 for 6 weeks. The person who replaced me was compromised and then I was sent to replace him. And in the course of time, the U.S. generals, the American generals, and the aliens formed a committee and decided that they would pick just one observer, and they picked me, And as a committee decision. And that one observer would just be sent all the time and be the range weather observer, win, lose, or draw, uh, no matter what happened. And so therefore, in, uh, in late 65 and early 66, well, after the selection process, I was given top-secret orders. The orders were that I could go anywhere I wanted out in dreamland. The, ba- the alien base is actually in Area 54, and the housing area is called Area 53. And Dreamland actually, at least at that time, and I presume the same is true today, was Area 53, Area 54, and parts of the Desert Southwest Game Range. When you're physically at Indian Springs and you're looking up the valley, Dreamland includes the mountains on the eastern side of the valley. My orders allowed me to go anywhere I wanted out in Dreamland, day or night and, uh, but I had to do so alone. If I took anyone else out with me, I wouldn't be in any trouble, but the person who was with me might be shot, and they would be in serious trouble. (coughs) When I received my orders, my commanding officer, a major, ordered me to, um, into and to work the day shift on Sunday on sunday the nellis weather station is otherwise deserted and the base operations part of the building is also deserted and then he came in he came in on at noon to the nellis base commander's office where the nellis base commander and the number two man had also come in to deliver the orders which they had received from the Pentagon, and then the major, the, the MPs escorted the major with my orders in hand over to the weather station. The weather, the MPs stayed outside, and the major called me in his office, locked all the doors, and read me my orders. <coughs> the orders. Be- began by saying nothing I did would ever be classified that I could tell anyone I wanted or not tell anyone if I didn't want. I could never be inspected. No one could ever come out and ins- or ask me questions. They could listen if I felt like talking, but that was it. My comman- he and the, my chain of command could not come out to the weather station. If, they, if there was an emergency and they needed to talk to me, they could only talk to me in the parking lot of the chow hall at Indian Springs. If they did so, as soon as they returned back to Nellis, as soon as they got back to the front gate, they had to, re- they had to report immediately to the neurosurgeon for debriefing. On the other hand, I could go and come anywhere I wanted, when he said I could go anywhere in dreamland, I thought he meant that I could go to sleep on the job because <laughs> I didn't know there was a dreamland and I was thinking, what a job, you know, when he finished, I, I wanted to make sure that that was okay because, you know, the military, you're not supposed to sleep on duty and and so I said to him, I said, I asked him, I said, will there be a, a cot or a bunk out at the weather station so that I can, you know, sleep? And, and he looked a little confused, and he said, "It was his understanding that Dreamland was a place, but that only I would know where that place was." And I thought, you know, he's just trying to be gentle and say, "You, you sleep away, you know." <laughs> and that was the first I'd ever heard tell of Dreamland. The um, in the in the course of the two plus years that I spent out on the ranges, the aliens who are tall and white and have family groups with women and children would frequently come down to where I was. As the weather observer, my duties were to go out to the ranges uh, Monday through Friday, every day uh, to to take the the morning run. The morning run was at 4.30 a.m. To do so, you had to get up at three o'clock and drive out there at night, rain or shine. And then you had to fill, uh, you you had to start, there was a generator out uh, two generators out there, two diesel generators. You had to start up a generator so that you had some electricity and, and it would run the fan on the heater and so on and the radio and the lights. And then you had to fill up a weather balloon with helium, attach a light and release it. The children found that very entertaining. It was a pretty balloon with pretty lights. And so they... The mothers liked to bring the children down to look through my light as I was tracking the balloon. About half the time they came so the kids could play. Um, uh, when When I first encountered the aliens, I was terrified because they're not human even though they look reasonably human. It probably took me more than six months to get over the terror that I felt when they came, even though they had not come to harm me, it's just that being out there at night in the desert and, say, hearing people walking behind your weather shack when you think you're alone, even if they were priests, you'd be afraid, you know, but when you discover that they're not human, well, you know, this was the 60s, there's just You know, it took a a long time to get used to it. Um, There was no briefing. The Air Force never said, this is the situation. The aliens never came and said, this is the situation. They never came to teach me anything. They came when they wanted. They left when they wanted. And therefore, it took me a long time to, um, to get used to it. Everything I know about the aliens, I had to figure out myself. Or or occasionally they would answer questions, but not very many because they came for their purposes, and when they'd finished their purposes, they Um, left. They were really quite friendly, but each one of them was an individual. Interacting with them is sort of like interacting with the people in New York City. There are saints and there are sinners, you know, there are people of all different walks of life and all different viewpoints. And so, you know, I had some that were close friends, like, or almost like brothers, like tour guide whose life I was credited with saving, and the teacher who credited with me with saving my daughter's life. And on the other hand, there were some, like one of the alien generals that, golly, I'm still afraid of him, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you met him, and if he said, stand there, he's good there, you know, <laughs> it was no, no bad thought the alien doctor who, who was the doctor that saved, did the medical work on the tour guy, their CIA he was just a nice guy you know, he was the kind of guy that might come up and hug you if you let him, I never did it <laughs> freaked me out but they just came in all different you, you know, you had to deal with each one of them as individuals um, it took a while to get used to that and it, it, it became a process of Getting to know each one to the extent of that, that you dealt with a The base that they have up in Area 54. They they use that base the same way that the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Navy uses bases. Uses their bases the way the Navy would use a base in the Philippines or an island in the Pacific. At the at the base at the alien base, the tall white deep spacecraft arrive and leave on schedule, and what, they arrive at, typically on at sundown on the night of the full moon. They because they're gravity powered. They are in typically in ba- at the base for two weeks, and then they leave at midnight on the night of the new moon. Because they're gravity powered, if presuming everything is going well, during those two weeks the spacecraft is refueled and repaired, and the people on board get off and stretch their legs. So at the base there's a more or less permanent contingent of tall whites who are experienced in dealing with humans and typically who know English. And um, on the other hand, every two weeks, or, you know, every time a deep spacecraft arrives, there's a contingent of new arrivals. Many of whom have never seen humans before. And, and and while the spacecraft is being repaired and refurbished, then the experienced troops, the experienced albites, typically take those new arrivals who are brave enough, take them out and show them the town, You take them out and show them what humans are like. Uh, and of course, me running my weather station, um, I'm the test human, you know? And so it was common every time there was a new moon for. You know, after the new arrivals had rested up, for them to, for the experienced, uh, for an experienced guard to bring around a group of new arrivals, the number of new arrivals could be anywhere from two or three to twenty, depending on how many were brave enough to come watch Gorilla Charlie in the sagebrush, and um, and, and so um, while the spacecraft is being repaired, they also had um, a technology exchange program with the U.S. Air Force. In which, in which those technologies which they were willing to share with the Air Force, they would work on joint projects with the U.S. Air Force, they were only willing to share technology to the extent that it benefited them. For example, when the spacecraft was in port, they might need spare parts. Those spare parts might include radio equipment. Well, it was easier for them if they could just call up the U.S. Air Force and say, could we buy a new radio? You see? Uh, so it was very so it was odd. Ob- and on the other hand, the Air Force can, and the Army can always use better radios. You see, and so it was common for them. So one area where they were obviously doing technology transfer was in the area of radio communications. So that we could build radios that they could use, and in return, we knew how to build better radios. Uh, uh, some technologies, like the secret to how they're, the the secret to how, how they traveled faster than light, they were not willing to share. The idea of us having our own spacecraft traveling faster than the speed of light with nuclear weapons on board heading for their home planet, they didn't see where that was in their interest. And so, so when, when I say they were doing technology transfer with the Air Force, that was a negotiation where both sides mutually agreed that it was in their interest to do so. The Tall Whites live probably ten times longer than we do. They live almost 700 years. And and their spacecraft clearly travel faster than the speed of light. they, They look, they're humanoid. Their skin is as white as a piece of paper. Throughout much of their adult life, they're the same height that I am. Five, 11, 6 feet tall. <clears throat> they have um, they have large eyes. Their eyes are perhaps twice as large as ours. They're typically blue, and then as they say blue blue eyes with white pupils. Um, although when they when they get older, especially the men, their eyes take on a pink shade. Their eyes stretch further around the sides of their head than human eyes do, and 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 and. Uh, and their, their ears and their nose, noses, are only about half the size of human ears and noses. And their ears lay back along the side of their head more than a human does. They have, their lips are not as prominent as humans, and they don't have teeth, they just have ridges, because they're planty-rich, they are plant eaters, they do not eat meat. They have much less hair than they do, they don't have any hair in their arms, and on their the, and the men don't have beards. On their head, they have the hair is only they have only about half as much hair as humans. And their hair is so thin and transparent that they appear to be platinum blonde. Uh, or, or sometimes, when they keep their hair cut short, sometimes they don't appear to have hair because it's so thin. They they, they um. They're, they're 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 much frail. they're, they're built. Their their body structure is more frail than ours. The um, alien whose CIA name was Range Four Harry, for example. One time I saw him walking in the soft dirt over on the southwest side of the Range Three Lounge, and after he had left, I went over and mes- measured the depths of the footprints he left. And from those, I estimated that he only weighed between 90 and 110 pounds, even though he was the same height as I am. Their arms, their bones are only about half as big as ours. Their thumbs are only about half as long, but their fingers are longer in proportion to their hand than ours. And they're way more flexible. It may, it, but it also means that they're not built for heavy lifting. We're built like gorillas, compared to that, you see. Um, they have men, women, and children, and if the men and women are standing side by side and not walking and moving, it's frequently not possible to tell which one is the man which one is the woman, especially for the young adults. When they get older, then, then there are obvious differences but in the facial structure and the bones and stuff. But especially for the young adults, it's entirely possible for two of them to be standing side by side, and if they're not moving, to be not sure if you're talking to men or women. Once they start moving, though, then it's very obvious which ones are the men and which ones are the women, because the men are more like human men. When they walk, they kind of go pound, 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 whereas the women are, are much lighter on their feet and much, um, much more animated. The, the women are much more, like human women, much more willing to talk than the men. It wouldn't be at all unusual for, say, four, four young men to come around and not have any reason to say anything and not say anything. You just come around to just come and not say hello, not say goodbye, not say anything in between, and just stand and look at you. Whereas the women, if they came, usually the women would say something like, uh, typically, uh, is it okay if my if the children play while you release the balloon? Or, or usually, if you ask the women something, they would have some questions, um, or some, or, or or at least some conversation. But they never came just. The tall whites never came just to talk with me. They, if they were talking with me, it was, it was always as part of the reason they came. Uh, the um the the women were very proud of the fact that they loved their children. The men were too, but the women were immensely proud of it. If a tall white lady came and she had children with her, a very common way for her to start the conversation would be for her to ask me, using English, which she'd learn, Do I understand that they love their children more than human women love their children? Or in other words, I want to make sure my children are safe. safe. And of course, when I said, yes, I understand that, then they would we re- relax and feel happier. If a tall white lady came with children and she didn't say anything, a common way for me to start the conversation would be for me to say, I understand that you love your children more than human women love them their children. And then she'd relax and feel, and feel better. In many ways the twelve white women were like female gorillas. To consider the children to be on of us. If you touch the children, the mother might kill you, no matter how pleasant she seemed. No matter how close the child came. So for example, and I speak from direct experience, if I was standing by my piano line, and the child wanted to look through the cabinet and the child was right there, then there's no way in the world that it, it, it would be suicide if you reach over and touch the child. That will upset the mother, you, you know. Um, <coughs> the, the, um, uh, uh, and for example, on one evening, um, this tall white lady came, who um, I had seen a few times before, but sh- uh, she wasn't a regular and she brought three children with her. And she was somewhat older than the typical young adult and therefore somewhat taller. She was six one, six two. 6'2". And, and following the usual so-called protocol, she had come down the uh, bunker road with her three children in an obvious manner to let me get used to the idea that she was coming with her kids. And then when she got to the end of the bunker road where the range boards were, she began approaching come approaching me directly. I was halfway across the square. And as she got closer, well, perhaps 20 feet, 15 feet, Uh, um, Even though I wasn't, I'd gotten over my fear of the tall whites, Uh, you know, because you had to treat each one as an individual, I found her, I found it a little intimidating that she was coming that close. And so I backed away from my theatrilite towards the generator shack. And she said, is it okay if the children look in my weather shack while I took my report? And I said, yes. And so I backed away to the generator shack and stood with my back to the wall of the generator shack and left her standing just to the northeast of my theadolite and you know, said, take all the time you want. And so then the three children went into my weather shack like kids do, and they didn't touch anything or move anything, but they were just looking around out of curiosity. As I stu- and, and at the time, as she stood there, she was looking at her children who were in the shack. Now, I'm not sure they were all her children. I, usually, when the t- oh, tall white lady came with three children, the typical contingent, one would be hers and two would be the children of someone else. Typically, she'd be babysitting two kids and bringing one of her own. And, and so she was watching the children. I became concerned because I had a can of Coca-Cola, which was in a metal can, sitting on one of the shelves. Now the tall whites wore suits when they came at night, that put out a zone of fluorescent light and radioactive particles. The suits protected them from things, like if you threw a rock at them, the rock would hit them, it would get to that zone and fall to the ground. It also allowed them to levitate, especially the children, but they had to balance themselves when they did so, so the children might use the suits to levitate. The adults usually didn't levitate very much, nine inches or so, but it worked like an Elevator, as I'll describe later. And I became concerned that since the children had their suits on, usually the kids turned off the power to their suits when they went my shaft. And I, I became afraid that they would get next to that can of Coca Cola and might be in some danger, in which case I might be blamed, you know. It would have been, you know, it would have been suicide for me to go over to my weather shack and speak to the children. You know, the mother might well have killed me if I'd done that. There's no way in the world you could go over there and say, "Children, don't do this. Children, don't do that." You, you're just taking your life in your hands to try that. You have to talk to the mother, you know, and that—that's how the tall whites are. And and on the other hand, she wasn't looking at me at the time. And so what I did is I took uh, two steps forward and stopped and stood there with my hands at my side and my feet, you know, not moving, and waited for her to see me. And of course, when I took two steps forward and stopped, then she looked over where I was immediately. And then when I had her attention, I said, I'm worried about the safety of the children. I have a can of soda pop, of Coca-Cola there in that can. And I'm worried that the children might be in some danger if they get too close to it. And the mother said, I'll handle it. And then the mother obviously communicated with the children, and the children were very well behaved, and they stayed away from my camp so far. The children never disobeyed their parents that I ever saw, and the parents would do anything for the children. So when they traveled in family groups, they were very tightly knit. When the women came around, they never came around alone. None of the wildlife ever came around alone. They always came around in groups, and the adults were always well right on. But it was common for the women to be very proud of their family relationship. The men were too, but it was just more common for the women to, to, to describe it. So it was was very common for like for, a, for a, if a, if a group of them came around for the ladies to say um, things like the guard on the tower is my mother's brother's son, you know, you know, but, you know, but, yeah, and, and just identify who the, you know all their friends were if they were if, who they were when they used to and who they weren't related to and um and and um the, far more so than what humans would do uh, uh, the, the, when they so they they did more than just travel and they appeared to maintain very tight nets the, the, the tall whites um live approximately 10 times longer than humans um, are. And, and they don't age the way we do. When they get, throughout most of their adult life, as, as I said, they're about our height, 5'10", 5'11", five, five, 6 feet. But then when they get equivalent in age to a human who's perhaps 39 or 40 years old, and for them that's perhaps 400 years old, then they start growing again and and, and instead instead of aging the way we do. As they grow older, they go through several more growth periods. This is not necessarily good for them because only their bones and muscles grow. Their internal organs don't grow in proportion. Pretty soon, they get very tall, eight, eight and a half feet tall, but their organs aren't able to support their body. So as they get taller, they become more fragile. Eventually, after six or seven hundred years or in there somewhere, there comes a growth phase where they begin growing again, and their organs can't support it, in which case they die. Usually, usually, by the time they get to be eight feet tall, they're fragile. And usually, aliens that fall are accompanied by younger adults to study them. Um, Living longer does have some drawbacks. For one thing, their bodies do not heal as quickly as ours. If they break a leg, and they're very fragile, or they break, it may take their bones fine to earth years to heal. Whereas, as you know, a young person, when I was young, if I broke a leg, could heal up in, I don't know, a few weeks or so. I'm not a medical doctor, but would heal up much faster. Cut some scratches, for example, on, on, when, on when I was young one time, for example, and I was out in the ranges, one day I scratched myself in a very ordinary fashion in the morning. By the afternoon, it had already healed up nicely, and by the next day, I had almost forgotten about it. The next day, the, a group of tall whites came around with the experienced tall white and some young arrivals, and they were, they were very impressed that my body had already healed. For them, that would have taken several weeks to, to have healed up like that. Um, also, although they're considered to be more intelligent than we are because their nervous system runs two or three times faster than ours does, it does have some drawbacks. They tend to, when they're doing something, they tend to focus in on it more carefully than a human beings, and they're therefore very easy to surprise when they're human uh, beings. On one time, when a, a group of five hearts came around, which usually experienced a card, experience and, and a group of men arrived they finished the morning round. And I was young, I was doing hypnology, I was drinking so much, I was eating, chewing up, I was talking, I was doing my, I was doing my, I released the blue notes, talking my blue notes, the one, and I was seeing some songs and dancing, but I'm too, specifically from to the great girls' songs, all kind of at the same time, already down the road. And, and one of the new arrivals of the students are, are all humans able to do that, because multiple. The Paul White's wouldn't have done it that way. They would have looked the classical gun reading. Or they would have looked staying readings and classical readings. Or or you know, saying a song and passing a song. so that um, and so they appreciated as I did one of the first agreements for that I'm agreement. gonna we agreed that um, they wouldn't come up behind me and scare me, they could do so very easily. Um, and I wouldn't come up behind them and scare them, you see. If I saw one of them out in the desert and he and it didn't appear that he had seen me, that I wouldn't approach him. I would just stay where I was and sing, sing make a sound or sing one of my songs, such as the song by Ricky Nelson, It's Up To You, because I've done everything, you know. And un, until I was sure they had seen me. And then I wouldn't approach him, I would just stay where I was. And if they chose to come closer to me, they could approach me as close as they felt uh, until uh, until they didn't feel comfortable. An experienced troop might come right up to you, 10, 15 feet. A new arrival might step back out to you. On the other hand, if they chose to, to move away, to run away, I wouldn't pursue it. I would say to my husband, if I, they didn't believe, they'd be coming over to wanting to work with The same with the reverse is true, if they were approaching me, and they got too close to the side dog, as in the case of a tall type lady in front of so that, so that we could, so that before we began talking, we would first come to a distance where we both felt comfortable. You see? I've always felt that that was, and then if I got too uncomfortable, if I felt like going away, they wouldn't pursue, and. I felt that was very important in being able to deal with Paul Weitz, because it allowed, it allowed both me and Paul Weitz to come to a common for, and for, some, might like the and for him, That might be as little as for other, other, other
0: 東京で大変流行って
1: doors window, factory direct low prices. Doors unlimited,
0: unlimited
1: doors! Rainbow, le 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 Toro like work Nanto, brand Random ass sounds looped onto a dull electronic
0: music.
1: In 2013-ish this became a part of a ubiquity of high fidelity sounds and old composition structures but